Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 10th, 2021, uh, in a very sunny San Francisco. The sky outside is blue. Similarly blue, I guess, in a, in a very uh, sad way, if, sky, if, if blue skies can be sad, to that day 20 years ago in New York City. We all know that day, 9-11, um, the 11th of September, uh, 2001, uh, in which uh, everybody knows exactly what happened that day. Uh, the American media about to, and I'm not sure if we should use this word, celebrate, mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11. The American media is full of references and discussions and meaning of, of, of 9-11. New York Times, which is essentially still, I think, our newspaper of record in the United States, has stories about how students in 12 countries are taught about 9-11, a special feature on the impact of 9-11 on Muslim American students. Um, there's a wonderful piece by a woman, uh, a female writer um, called Laila Lalani about what we remember and forget on 9-11. The act of memory and forgetting, of course, is key. Um, and Lalani compares the falling men of 9-11 from the buildings in New York City to uh, a boy falling from an aircraft in Afghanistan, which is another image seared on our memory, uh, not from uh, 20 years ago, but from a week or two ago. Uh, everywhere there are references, and Americans love to think, I think, about who wins and loses. Michelle Goldberg suggests in the New York Times she's a left-wing journalist, that bin Laden won, that 20 years have elapsed since 9-11, and it's clear that al-Qaeda and bin Laden won the war, or whatever it was that took place between bin Laden, al-Qaeda, and the United States. Uh, Sir Sheeman, who wrote the 9-11 editorial for the, for, for the New York Times 20 years ago, suggests that in his memory... 9-11 uh, is shorthand for the moment when America lost its way, the war with Afghanistan having come to a tragic, ugly, and senseless end. Um, and Paul Krugman, surprise, surprise, writing in the New York Times, suggesting that foreign terrorists have never been our biggest threat, perhaps suggesting that nationalist, white uh, nationalist terrorists in the United States uh, are more dangerous. That day then remains very much alive. It happened 20 years ago, but it's still contemporary. And so I'm thrilled. Again, I think we have to be careful with that word. I'm pleased that there are many books about that day. And there's a new book out called On That Day uh, by, uh, by my guest today, uh, William M. Arkin, who's a security analyst and was very much involved both in the intellectual response to 9-11 and, um, and to writing its history. I'm thrilled that he's joining us today. Uh, Bill, 9-11 isn't dead, is it? It's as much alive today as it was 20 years ago. 
even more so than I think you described, because not only is it something that people of our age can actually remember where we were, what we felt, what it meant to us, but for a new generation, I think it even kind of represents the disintegration of American bipartisanship and American uh, uh, polity, the the acceptance of government word, the the uh, the beginning of the perpetual wars, uh, and and really the unsatisfying performance of the government, which was never fully ex explained, which then itself spawned an enormous uh, response in terms of uh, conspiracies that were created as a result of 9-11, and I think the cleaving of American society uh, between those who believe and those who don't believe, and that very much affects us today. So it's not that this discord or that terrorism or that war or that the a cleaving of America began with 9-11, but 9-11 was certainly the seminal event that shapes the day that we have today, the world that we have today. So uh, Michel Goldberg is correct then. The way's bin Laden won, and he won in ways that he couldn't have even imagined. Do you think that's fair? No, I don't think it's fair, and I don't think it's true. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda is merely a representation of a certain... Uh, intellectual, if you will, uh, position within the Muslim world uh, that uh, the religion itself is under assault, um, that, uh, that the ability to create an Islamic state is thwarted by the West and its allies in the, in the Middle East. Um, and I don't think that the threat of terrorism per se is necessarily worse. Uh, but wouldn't it be fair to say, uh, Bill, that the real goal of bin Laden was to weaken America, to humiliate America, was to show that uh, 10 or 15 guys with wire cutters could attack America at its heart. He succeeded on the day, and in the 20 years that have elapsed, America is certainly weaker now than it was 20 years ago. But, it, but it's, it's a mistaken analysis to say that he is responsible or even the events of 9-11 are responsible, we are responsible. And by virtue of saying Al-Qaeda won or bin Laden won, you're sort of disobligating the American people from taking any responsibility for their own course and their own path. By merely saying that it's the government's fault and the government is responsible, it sort of separates us from the very government that's supposed to represent us. And so I would say we are responsible. You know, we're responsible for not holding the government accountable. We're, we're responsible from letting them spend ever more money on war and intelligence and counterterrorism. We're responsible for the discourse in America today. And, and I, I think these are all clever arguments, but really what 9-11 represents is it represents the beginning of the unraveling of a country that we are ultimately responsible for. And it's disempowering to say the government is responsible or the Bush administration is responsible or the CIA is responsible or bin Laden is responsible. I think that what we live with today is under our control and we need to recognize that so that we can stop letting the national security establishment run our country and run the world. And so we can begin to uh, 
start a process of having actual accountability for those who govern us. And we can begin to believe again in the very institutions uh, that everybody says they support that the founding fathers created. Well taken, Bill, uh, and you use the word unraveling. I don't think it's any coincidence that George Packer wrote that book, Unraveling, as a consequence in many ways to 9-11. Your book is a, an attempt in very factual terms to simply explain what happened on that day. But you have an agenda yourself. You have a position. At the beginning of the book, you quote Morton Abramowitz. Uh, when it comes to foreign policy, we have a tongue-tied administration. After almost eight months in office, neither President Bush nor Secretary of State Colin Powell had made any comprehensive statement on foreign policy. It's hard to think of another administration that has done so little to explain what it wanted to do in foreign policy. This is quoted from an op-ed appearing in the Washington Post on the morning of September uh, 11th, 2001. Uh, are you suggesting that ultimately the responsibility of this lies in the court, and I use that word carefully, of George W. Bush and his administration? Well, he was the president of the United States, and that administration came into office in January 2001, I think believing that there were no real threats to the United States. This was a time period when Russia was barely hanging on as a third world nation, and its only claim to fame was that it had nuclear weapons. Uh, this was a time where also they adopted something called what they called, what they called ABC, anything but Clinton. And this was a time also when there were a whole set of national security titans, Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, who were supposed to tutor and help this young president uh, to rule the world and to keep the United States safe. I think that for the, the nine months that existed uh, between when they took office and 9-11 occurred, uh, they dithered as to what the U.S.'s focus and strategy should be. Sure, there were some people who were arguing that terrorism was the greatest threat, but there were also people arguing that Iraq was, that North Korea was, that China was. And so as the Bush administration sort of meandered its way into 9-11, uh, it never was able to grasp the gravity of terrorism as a threat to the United States, something that I ultimately blame on CIA Director George Tennant and on uh, the counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark, because it's their job to convince the president that what they think is, is right, and they failed to do so. And then they failed to do their basic jobs, which was, in fact, to provide warning of this attack. So there are many people who are to blame but ultimately, the lack of understanding and the lack of recognition of the importance of terrorism, and, and I'll tell you myself, I'm an old nuclear weapons specialist, and then I focused on the Iraq war after that and focused on air power all the way through the Kosovo war, it was just two years before 9-11. And I didn't really take terrorism seriously as a threat to the United States as well, to a, as a threat to the planet. And I'm not sure that today we can articulate it that way, but the fact of the matter is that there are now hundreds of thousands of Muslims who wish to do us harm and who at the same time 
are spreading an ideology throughout the Middle East and Africa and even into Southeast Asia uh, that is contrary to Western interests. And we haven't defeated them and we haven't convinced them otherwise. And so therefore we're sort of in this same uh, uh, roadblock you know, Joe Biden came into office as president and his focus was, I'm going to eradicate COVID. I'm going to get us out of Afghanistan. But you can't evade the fact that the world is what it is. We can't just cure COVID in the United States and imagine that COVID is then gone when the rest of the world is not anywhere near at the point where we are. So, Every administration struggles with an agenda. Obama came into office promising transparency, the closure of Guantanamo, the end of the Iraq war. None of it happened. So it, I, I, I do blame the Bush administration as a historic fact, but I don't necessarily think that we should overly look at the Bush administration. What we should look at instead are the systemic elements of American governance and of American policy and of the American public mind that persist to this day, that revisited us during COVID-19, that revisited us on the January 6th insurrection, that revisited us in the withdrawal of Afghanistan. Let's go back to the book, Bill. Um, on that day, uh, the definitive timeline of 9-11, um, you, you, you literally, it is a definitive timeline. It's an attempt to factualize uh, what happened on that day. Uh, let me just quote the introduction. You have a, a couple of paragraphs, which I think summarizes what happened on September uh, 11th, 2001 very well. On September 11, 2001, two hijacked commercial air airliners crashed into the north and south tires of the World Trade Center. Soon thereafter, the Pentagon was struck by a third hijacked plane. A fourth hijacked plane, suspected to be bound for the U.S. Capitol building, crashed into a field in Somerset County in southern Pennsylvania when passengers managed to overpower the hijackers. The attacks that day killed 3,030 U.S. citizens and other nationals. There were 2,735 persons who died in the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York, uh, 2,184 occupying the two buildings, 129 aboard the two aircrafts, 119 passengers and crew, and 10 hijackers, 343 New York City firefighters, 71 law enforcement officers, including 60 New York City and Port Authority police, and eight private emergency medical technicians and paramedics. A total of 189 were killed at the Pentagon. 125 uniformed military, civilian, and contractor personnel, and 64 passengers, crew, and terrorists. 44 died in Pennsylvania. Um, this focus on numbers, Bill, is that because of social media, of fake news, and the increasingly conspiratorial fetish of our culture? Well, I tried as much as I could to write an even-handed and very factual book. It has more than a thousand footnotes it's based upon the actual transcripts, diaries, and events of that day. So it's hard to dispute what happened, why it happened. That's another question. And what its implications are, that's another question. That's what everybody's writing about today and will be writing about tomorrow. And then the 20th anniversary will go by and we will go and 
pay attention to something else next week. So I'm focused on the facts because I think that we still don't understand everything that happened on 9-11 and people are confused about what happened. They're confused about why uh, the airplanes uh, were be able to be hijacked in the first place. They're confused about how the World Trade Center towers fell. They're confused about World Trade Center 7, the building adjacent that also collapsed. They're confused about what the CIA did or didn't know. They're confused about what the Bush administration did or didn't do. So uh, it, it was amazing to me as I compiled this timeline of what happened on 9-11 itself. First of all, how much I didn't know, how much I didn't recognize or how much I didn't see at the time. And I was a, a commentator on air for NBC the day after 9-11. Uh, I was on the radio with NBC uh, the day of 9-11. So uh, this has certainly been my uh, life's work. It's certainly what been- in particular, Bill, have you? did you learn from researching and writing on that day that, as you say, that you as an expert or quote unquote expert, because you, as you acknowledge in the book, uh, you were kind of an expert or it, simply because you knew a bit more than everybody else, but you didn't know that much yourself. Um, well, the most important one is one that's going to shock most people, which is that President Bush did a pretty good job, you know, he, he, behind the scenes rather than actually sort of the narrative that has grown around 9-11. Uh, he constantly clamored to return to Washington. He, he argued vociferously with the Secret Service and with Dick Cheney. Um, he thought it was necessary to show his face. He thought it was necessary to speak. Uh, he thought it was necessary to return to the White House, even if the White House was under threat. And... Um, he and he insisted on being the decision maker, something that both Cheney and Rumsfeld essentially thwarted. So the first thing I took away was, wow, George Bush did a pretty good job here. Um, and I think that was surprising. And the second thing I, I took away was that the Pentagon was completely and utterly incompetent. Uh, it was incompetent in terms of the air defenses. It was incompetent in terms of uh, the alert levels that it assigned to U.S. forces and mistakenly uh, ratcheted up the alert level of all. Is this incompetence on the level of, of Dr. Strangelove? I mean, how incompetent were these people? Well, when when Donald Rumsfeld make, made the decision uh, after consulting with Dick Cheney to raise the alert level to DEFCON 3, the second highest alert level of U.S. forces, he neglected to talk to the president, even though Cheney told him to do so. Uh, and then after they declared uh, DEFCON 3, the Kremlin called the White House and said, what's going on? Why are you increasing the level of alert of your, your forces when we're decreasing the level of alert of our forces and canceling exercises left and right? What's going on? And I truly believe today because the DEFCON story has been so buried that they didn't understand that Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and uh, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dick Myers, didn't understand what it meant to, to, to blithely raise the alert level of U.S. forces, including nuclear forces on 9-11. And then after it was done, it sort of just faded into the woodwork. But here we had a cataclysmic event in the United States, 
and the Pentagon added to the tension by raising the alert level of U.S. forces and could have uh, it precipitated a war with Russia. You, um, you refer to the Cuban Missile Crisis in your introduction, saying that you built your book uh, on this day uh, to sort of in some ways similar to, to Graham Allison's uh, work on explaining the, the, uh, the essence of decision. Are you also suggesting that there are other comparisons between 9-11 and the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, here, the one that I just talked about, the raising of alert levels. Right, of- right. that's what I'm suggesting. Are you saying that it was as dangerous in some ways as the, the missile no, crisis? No, not dangerous because Russia didn't, didn't uh, harm us or didn't mean us any harm. I mean, the, 9-11 was so big and so shocking that even Saddam Hussein sent his condolences. Even the Iranian regime sent their condolences. I mean, everybody was shocked about this because everybody could see that this is something that could happen to them as well. So I don't compare it to the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I think the day needs to be studied more. It needs to be a part of uh, schooling in America, which it isn't really. Right. It needs to be a part of simulations at the college level, just like we have model United Nations and we have constant simulations of decision making in the Cuban Missile Crisis. What can we learn from all of this? How people don't uh, understand what's going on, how rumors affect government decisions, how lack of understanding of the workings of government affect government decisions. I mean, all of these questions are still live questions today. So the point of writing this book and the point of creating a meticulous record of 9-11 is to allow others to continue the historic and public policy research and even for the public itself to increase its understanding and be more engaged. And that I hope I've achieved. Well, I thought it was very unsettling, your book on that day. And I think it's designed to be unsettling. As I said, the the newspaper headlines this morning tend to be less unsettling. Uh, 9-11 is presented in ways that only confirm what we think in the first place. As you say, your book uh, on that day is unsettling because it's an uh, unvarnished, unabashed, minute-by-minute, uh, minute, essentially, version of, of what happened on that day. You end, um, Bill, with Mohammed Atta's final letter in the book. Why did you choose to publish Atta's letter as a kind of endpoint to your narrative? Well, because I think that the biggest tragedy that really has emerged from 9-11 is that we never understood the terrorists and what their objectives were and what their ideology was. We never had any curiosity about who they were as people. And, uh, and now we're 20 years later, and uh, that seems to be still the case. And yet we're battling terrorism and we're battling Islamic radicalism around the world. And we don't seem to have very much interest in understanding what actually motivates uh, the terrorists. And I think that a big part of what motivates them is, is, is our policies and our actions. And uh, after 9-11, this was an absolute taboo for anyone to say. Everybody was just screamed at and told, oh, you're blaming America for what they did. But the truth of the matter is that 20 years after 9-11, we should have the courage uh, to be able to uh, uh, accept that, uh, that we still uh, need to learn a lot about terrorists and what they think in order to ultimately defeat terrorism. 
I take that point on 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 Muhammad Atta. Um, for those people who haven't read your book yet or who haven't read um, Muhammad Atta's letter, uh, what does it? What should it teach Americans about the mentality of these so-called terrorists, these members of uh, Al Qaeda who who perpetrated this great crime, this historical, well, one of the you know the great historical events in uh, in human history. Well, I've done a lot of work trying to understand the terrorists. Um, and, and one of the things I would say would be that the three uh, who came from Hamburg, from the so-called Hamburg cell, uh, the pilots of the planes that hit the North and South Tower and went down in uh, Pennsylvania, those three men from three different countries, Lebanon, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, essentially went overseas to study um, were disenchanted by American, by Western society as represented by Hamburg, Germany. And, um, and they also were willing to give their lives for an ideology that somehow by harming America, that they were gonna awaken both the Islamic world uh, of the need for jihad, but also awaken the Americans to understand uh, their policies and their actions in the Middle East. And so taken as men, taken as they, uh, existed. Uh, the tra- the fact of the matter is that that I I come to the conclusion that uh, we need to we need to reexamine and 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 understand their their points of view uh, because they uh, is living in Hamburg, uh, essentially finishing master's degrees, finishing their bachelor's degrees, uh, looked at their own societies and said we have nothing to return to. We have should they be called? Uh, should we call them terrorists, Bill, or is that a useless, pointless word? No, I think we should call them terrorists. I don't have a problem with that, but I have a problem with overusing the words. I have a problem with our not recognizing these men and Al Qaeda and what it was and what it believed in. I mean, Osama bin Laden had an ideology, and you know, we study Nazi Germany, we study Imperial Japan, we study our enemy, we studied the Soviet Union until we were blue in the face. I mean, the reality is that uh, we should we should try to understand what their grievances were. A huge part of their grievances uh, related to the presence of U.S. military forces in the Middle East, particularly in Saudi Arabia. And today, when the 9-11 families themselves are clamoring for more explanation about the role of Saudi Arabia, it's time for us to reinvestigate what is the meaning of our warring and the meaning of our military presence in this part of the world where the people don't want us to be there. Well, it's great stuff uh, on that day uh, by uh, William M. Arkin. It's out uh, today. It's uh, an hour by hour, almost in it, a minute by minute historical recollection of what happened uh, on that uh, terrible day in uh on September 11th, 2001, that day, we all know that day, and 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 and, and uh, William um, William Arkin has has done a great job. I hope, uh, Bill, perhaps your follow-up book will be a more uh, a, a, a broader critique of American foreign policy and incorporating some of the ideas that you've articulated today. I want to thank you for the book and for your honesty. Not everyone will agree, but I think it's quite brave of you to come on the day before September 11th with such. Um, with such outspoken, honest take on, on what's happened over the last 20 years. So thank you so much. 
And we'll, we'll, I'd love to talk to you again about some of these broader issues of America in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and so on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much.